If you have a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. It's a while since we've been in Mark's Gospel, but we've been working through it uh, on most occasions when I preach. I am loud. I like it. Um, So we are going to look at Mark chapter 10, and we'll read from verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's absolutely fine. Uh, The scripture references will come up on the screen, so you can follow it there if you like. We multitask here, so the the opportunity to give is still happening, probably, but you're expected to find your Bible at the same time. (laughs) Here we go. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So you're no longer two, but one. Therefore... What God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So I wonder kind of how many people have been, uh, have been reading ahead and thinking, when are we going to get to this section on divorce? And, uh, you know, Let's all get the party poppers out. I mean, we can have a great time on a Sunday morning, can't we? Um, Again, it's one of those subjects and passages where we think, okay, we might like to move on fairly quickly. But the whole of Mark's gospel is the good news of Jesus. So everything in Mark's gospel is there to show us what Jesus is like and why he is good news. And so when Jesus comes across a crowd, what does he want to do? He wants to teach. He wants to share. He wants to tell them good news. He wants to change the way they think um, so that they're in line with and and living in the good of his kingdom. Um, So we're going to have a look at this passage that that, that, um, we've just read out um, right now. Centering on this question, we're going to look at first who is asking the question before we look at what was Jesus teaching and and consider how disciples um, then and today should uh, respond. So This large crowd gathers, Jesus teaches, and then this question comes, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? A thorny question, a painful question. Then and today, it's bound to be the case that in a crowd like that, and in the context of today, when about give or take 300 people will hear this message, a whole number of people have been affected um, by divorce one way or another. Uh, That can be by parents having broken up or or siblings in their relationship going through difficulty, or friends, or even children, or people who've experienced it themselves. Um, and so it's then interesting to see, well, who's asking the question? And why are they asking this question? We see the Pharisees are back on the scene. Uh, they're the ones piping up with on this particular subject matter. And we're told something of the, the motive behind them asking. 
They're not, again, we've seen this before, they're not genuinely interested in Jesus guiding them into truth. What they're trying to do is uh, stir up trouble for Jesus. Um, They have made up their minds not to follow him. They've made up their minds. uh, And so instead, rather than trying to learn, they're trying to trip him up. Now, save a thought for the politicians of our day. Normally, we might kind of expect you to dismiss many of them or just be aware there's so much spin in the world. Most days of the week, politicians will be asked by journalists difficult questions with a yes-no answer. And if they answer yes, there'll be a problem. And if they answer no, maybe for a different group of people, there'll be a problem. And the question is probably not quite painting a big picture of the whole issue. It's just trying to narrow it down and pin them. And um, sometimes that could be referred to as the horns of a dilemma. You know, if they answer one way, they'll get damaged by this horn. If they answer the other way, they'll get damaged by that one. Um, that's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to stir up trouble so that either way, however Jesus answers, whether he were to say, yes, it's lawful or no, it isn't, He's going to alienate a large group of people, um, and that's what they want. Now, so perhaps if they would want, maybe they want him to answer yes, it is lawful, um, and then Jesus can be accused of being uh, lax, and perhaps also he will alienate all those people, mainly women, who have been hurt as a result of divorce. We'll get him, they might be thinking, or perhaps. They actually want him to answer no. Where is Jesus? He's in the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Where did John the Baptist minister in that kind of area? What happened to John the Baptist, we're told, in Mark chapter 6? He was executed. Why was he executed? Because he'd been imprisoned. Who imprisoned him? Herod and Herodias. Why? Because John the Baptist had been speaking against their divorce and remarriage. So John had been outspoken on the subject and it had got him into hot water. Um, And so the Pharisees think if we can get him into the same predicament, um, then we can bring trouble on him. So stirring up trouble is also, uh, though, however, a a current debate. Um, This comes across slightly more clearly in Matthew chapter 19 where the same uh, conversation The same situation is recorded there in Matthew's Gospel, which was written a little bit later. Mark is always in a hurry to kind of get get through things. And so he's kind of, for for the benefit of his hearers, giving just as much information as they need. Matthew provides just that little bit more. So the question in Matthew 19 is recorded in this. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any... And every reason. That's a, the, the more full version of the question that Jesus was being asked. For any and every reason. And there's a reason why they were interested in asking him that. Because of, the, of a debate that was going on at a time. Which centered on Deuteronomy. Chapter 24. Verse 1. says there, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, 
and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and so on. The uh, Many people of the day zoomed in on this verse, and in particular, the phrase indecent. Something, something indecent. And there were two schools of thought in the day. One followed um, a rabbi called Shammai, and he said, something indecent is referring to sexual immorality. So here then is a grounds for divorce. If there's been sexual unfaithfulness of some sort. Another uh, rabbi came along by the name of Hillel, just in a few years leading up to the time of Jesus, and said, well, again, zooming in on just that phrase, saying, well, something indecent, why say the word something? Surely he's referring to two things. Indecency and something else. Anything else. And so um, a, a way of thinking developed which said, on that particular basis, on that particular scripture, there's more than one grounds for divorce. You can, there, there, there's divorce for marital unfaithfulness, for sexual immorality, but there's also any cause. If you find anything displeasing, anything displeasing about your, your spouse, or particularly your wife, uh, as the law was written like that, um, then you can write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So the Pharisees thought, well, that, that therefore gives us grounds to divorce when we want to. So you can kind of guess which view may have been more popular. Um, and indeed, that's probably why when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, before he had the dream where God explained, it's by the Holy Spirit, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, he could consider how to divorce her quietly. In other words, he could, do, he could choose to divorce her for any reason, rather than state in a legal setting, the reason I'm divorcing Mary um, is for her, for her sexual immorality. He considered divorcing her quietly. That's because this distinction existed. It could be for as little as she burns the dinner, or I like the way someone else looks now, so I found something displeasing, I want to move on. I want a convenient way out of a, of a marriage or out of a promise of marriage. Um, so that's where the Pharisees are coming from. I think mainly they would line up with this second school of thought, Hillel. We want to be able to divorce for any and every reason. And that's really what happens when we are uh, drawn into a legalistic way of thinking, our focus very much on the law, Focus, as we've seen before, a focus on keeping rules, a focus on outward appearance rather than inner reality, a focus on performance. What also goes with that is this question, what can I get away with? So I'm going to look at the law to find out what I have to do, even though I don't really want to, so that I can also find out what I can get away with. That was their that was their way of thinking. And this can be what happens in any hot topic now is sometimes it can become narrowed down on just one text, even on just one phrase. Everything else is ignored. A big picture is completely missed. Um, and it just comes down to one little proof text. And if I can prove that, then yet we can change the way marriage is defined or we can do this with our lives because, well, that's what the Bible says. I think it's an unhelpful way of thinking. 
That's what they're trying to prove. So when they get, when, when Jesus quizzes them further on it, well, what did Moses command you? They said, well, they've got to acknowledge, actually, did, Jesus didn't, uh, Moses didn't command divorce. Uh, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So their position is already getting weakened. And that's the, that's the background, that's the context of this question being asked and the answer from Jesus that follows. So we've seen the Pharisees testing him, Jesus, doesn't ignore the question, even though he can see the heart behind it. Uh, but he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't say, here are my thoughts on the subject. Or, I subscribe to this school of thought. He answers with a question that if we're in the habit of asking, we're, we develop a healthy mindset. He answers with a further question. In effect, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible actually say? What did Moses command? Let's look at Deuteronomy 24 a little bit more closely. But also, let's consider the whole counsel of God's word as well. And so as Jesus is then responding and teaching, he's saying he's not asking the question, what can I get away with? He's answering this question, what's God's heart? What does God want? What's God's design? What's God's purpose? What does God value? What is God looking for in marriage? And if we are married or we are considering marriage, it's very easy to ask ourselves the question, what do I want? What do I want from marriage? What do I want from this relationship? Here's what I would like to get out of it. Jesus would have us ask a different question. What does the Bible say? What does God want? What's his heart, his desire for our marriages? And what we we see, I'm going to just uh, draw out, Three things where Jesus is revealing or reminding of God's heart. Firstly, his heart, God's heart, is to protect the vulnerable. So if we were to go back to Deuteronomy 24 and just read a few more verses to see, well, what's God's heart here? It says here, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to her because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the man, the, the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you um, as an inheritance. Now as those verses go through, it's building up a whole load of of clauses. saying if this happens, if this happens, if this is a situation, if this is a situation, what's the actual command? The command is the first husband who sent her away can't take her back. It would just make a complete mockery of marriage and leaves her totally unclear 
as to where she stands. Well, he could send me away, but then almost the tie isn't quite cut, and he can just reel me back in if he wants to. Where do I actually stand? Um, the Lord's heart is to, is to kind of try and regulate. Moses is not saying, divorce her, or send her away and write a certificate. He's saying, if this happens, if that happens, Jesus pointing out, why is this happening? Moses gave this command because of hardness of heart. This was a damage limitation exercise. That no marriage was was to exist like a yo-yo. I can send you away and I can bring you back when it suits me. So God's protection was for the woman who was sent away. We see something similar in, in Exodus. And Exodus chapter 21 and verse 10. Again, it comes in part way through um, a scenario that's being explained. It says... Um, if he marries another woman, Moses is not commanding polygamy, but it happened in those days. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Again, the concern is for this first wife, actually the scenario as it's spelt out, um, is that uh, of a man who's taken a slave and taken a slave to be his wife. So again, we're not kind of, we're seeing the spirit, we're seeing the, the principles, uh, we're not saying, yeah, it's okay to have a slave, it's okay to, to marry another woman. No, no, let's see the principle of the matter. The principle is, husband, you've got a responsibility to provide uh, those uh, three things, food, clothing, and marital rights. So then it was understood at the time, or some would understand it, looking back at those uh, verses, that if a husband failed to do that, on one of those issues or responsibilities, a wife was free to go. She therefore could get a clean break, um, not be tied into a relationship with a man who is abusing her, or not looking after her, as he promised that he would by virtue of uh, his marriage vows. So this concern to protect, if vows have been broken, the victim, the woman, is not just kept on a yo-yo. This is what the Pharisees were completely missing. They were just going to say, what can we get away with? What can we get away with? Jesus is saying, "What's what's at the heart of the matter? And we also see, just God's heart for marriage. So Jesus doesn't just look back um, to Deuteronomy or Exodus even. He looks back to other parts of the law, the, the Torah, and going all the way back to Genesis. So he's quoting Genesis when he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He's quoting Genesis when he says that God made them male and female. He's going right back to the beginning of creation. He's going right back to God's purpose and plan before sin came in. So Jesus, if you like, he's more interested in talking about marriage. What does God want? God loves marriage. Find out in Malachi, God hates divorce. Why does he love 
marriage. Well, he loves the, uh, the union of one man and one woman together united um, with vows and promises for life. It's passionate. It's permanent. It's exclusive. It's God's design. It's not something that we came up with. And therefore, we're at liberty to tamper with down through the ages when it suits us to amend precisely who can get married. No, God's plan and purpose, one man, one woman, united together. And it's not like Adam had a huge amount of choice at the time, but you kind of get the impression as soon as he saw Eve, it's like, wow, he's absolutely bowled over she is like me but she is different so when husband and wife or when boy meets girl or when people get engaged there's that sense of oh we've got so much in common um however underlining this attraction and this uh, relationship is we're different i'm attracted to this person who is not precisely like me He thinks differently. She communicates differently. We are meant to complement each other and work together as a a united team. The the union is so strong that that God can describe it as it's one flesh. Two become one. And what does Jesus underline as he's just in this very brief um, moment teaching the Pharisees in answer to their question... um, He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined. It's massive emphasis on the joining of two people. It's like if you have one piece of A4 paper and you spray it with that powerful kind of fixative glue and you have another piece and you stick it together it kind of just becomes one piece of paper. It's not a gradual change. The moment those vows were said, two became one. And Jesus, uh, God is passionate for this because it reflects something of what he is like. God is three persons, together, united, in love and purpose, but different. And what is God's love like? I've been reading and very blessed by uh, the Psalms recently and just arrived um, not that long ago in my own times with God in Psalm 130. Um, and it says there in, in, in Psalm 130 verse 7, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. And when you read the Psalms, other passages too, you see that phrase over and over again. Unfailing love or steadfast love or faithful love. So we might think, well, what's, what's right at the heart of marriage? Well, of course, love is. Well, yes. What kind of love? Faithful love. Dogged, determined, never letting go, enduring love. Why? Because that's what God's love is like. Absolutely steadfast and rock. He doesn't change. We are in a relationship with God who will not change. And his love won't dilute or, or, or disappear over time. It's always strong. It's always passionate. 
His love is always permanent. So he has designed marriage to reflect something of what he is like. Highs you won't let go, lows you won't let go. We sometimes sing that song of God. And he wants that reflected in our marriages. Brings a great deal of security to us to know that God's never going to let go of us. Brings a great deal of security in marriage to know this other person's not going to let go of me. They're not going to fall out of love. They've promised, I love you. Now and every day. In sickness and in health, for better, for worse. I'm yours. And I'm committed to you. That's what those covenant promises mean. So God has a heart to protect the vulnerable. God's heart is for marriage. And God loves faithfulness. The Pharisees say nothing more. That could mean that after Jesus has explained this, they're crestfallen. Ah, we didn't get him. We didn't manage to trick him. Or it could mean they're going away really thoughtful. They've just got to choose one over. It was so um, uh, kind of saturating the culture. You can get divorced for any reason. And that's what even the religious leaders would do. That's how the Old Testament finishes in Malachi with God having a go at the priests saying, you've broken faith with the wife of your youth in order so that you can go and marry foreign women. God hates divorce. God hates this hardness of heart. This This is a horrific thing. And that kind of culture just got established easy quick don't even need to have some court hearing or spell out the grounds just write a certificate burn the dinner on your way so they've got a lot to think about if they're prepared to and you can guess the the disciples were not entirely in a dissimilar boat so again we see Jesus has been teaching the crowds. Later on in private, he comes to his... um, The the disciples perhaps ask him about this. They want a bit more understanding. They were perhaps surprised as well that Jesus didn't line up with the very liberal Hillel school of thoughts. They may have also been surprised that divorce... That Jesus didn't require divorce in some situations. They don't have to. And so what about us? What's our response? And uh, in coming to a close, I'll, I suppose I'll, I'll mention a few different groups of disciples. Firstly, married disciples. Here is my exhortation to you from this passage. Do not harden your hearts towards God or towards your spouse. In any circumstance or situation, it will never help to ask, what can I get away with? And it may not help to dwell on, what do I want to get from this marriage? The better question, as we've seen already, is what sort of marriage does God want us to have? We've seen that, Jesus said, or reminded the people that God made them male and female, right at in the recipe for marriage then is 
is difference. A husband and wife are different. They're not the same. Um, There is therefore this mysterious attraction. She's not like me. He's different from me. We're kind of drawn to kind of mysterious, attractive qualities that we don't see in ourselves that later down the line can become potentially uh, sources of tension. What was wonderful, she just thinks differently. Becomes, she thinks differently. <laughs> I will, forgive me, everybody, just give you an example from our own situation. It's fine. I love that we are different. I'm incredibly attracted to Rachel. Um, and we encountered a situation in John Lewis car park where uh, we encountered our differences. And I won't tell you which one was in which school of thought. We're just different. When it comes to time management, one is just in case. Just in case means if we need to be there in five minutes, we'll set off with 10 minutes to spare. It's safe, but it's slightly dull. And people with the just-in-case mentality probably get less done. There's also just-in-time. Just-in-time says, if we need to be there in five minutes, we'll leave in five minutes. And we might just attempt to do a few other things en route that we can achieve in the time. Just in time. Get more done. At this point, I could point out something about the tortoise and the hare. But if the tortoise and the hare had a race every day of the week, then it would have gone, you know, I'm sure sometimes the hare won. In other words, sometimes we are just different. And different, I hasten to add, isn't wrong in that situation. It's just men and women will will encounter ways in which we're wired differently. Um, Now, what I also see in the New Testament is that the apostles, in writing to churches, they feel very free to write to wives and husbands. Not just saying the same thing. Paul doesn't write, spouses, love one another, forgive one another, um, serve one another. In effect, he's already said that by speaking to the whole church. He'll say to wives, this is what I want you to bear in mind. This is what I think is relevant to you. Husbands, this is what you need to listen to. Peter does the same in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I think actually there, there can be differences that aren't kind of total, but are worth paying attention to. So when Peter writes to wives in 1 Peter 3, in a, he reminds them of Sarah. He reminds them of Sarah's uh, faith and her biblical beauty, her inner beauty, where did that inner beauty come from? It came from trusting God. And it says right at the end of that little section, it says, so you know, be like her, don't give way to fear. Oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe there is something in being a wife married to a man that can press a fear button. And for wives, sometimes, but not necessarily all the time, The fight for faith within marriage is the fight not to give in to fear. Abraham was a godly guy. But one day he woke up, he'd met with God, and he said, right, we're off. We're going. How did Sarah feel about that? Okay. I'm with you. 
Have you really heard God? When are we getting there? Where are we even going? But because I trust God, I trust you. And it's that way around. It's because I trust God for this marriage. She fights with faith. She fights against fear. For husbands, and maybe fear sometimes comes into it. But Peter then writes to husbands, husbands be considerate towards your wives. Why? Because for husbands at the heart, for perhaps how we're wired, is not so much fear, perhaps, but greed, selfishness. Keep running with faith in this marriage. Don't give in to that train of thought. I kind of want to get out of this relationship what I want. What about my needs? And if I don't get them, I might withdraw or something else or whatever. Think, no, husbands, don't harden your heart. Don't have your needs trump her needs. It's in the Bible. Let's not harden our hearts. Young people, those with a, with a hope to marry sometime in the future, decide that you are going to do things God's way. Decide or realize, because of what we're looking at in the word of God, that God's way is best. What he's designed for us, should you marry in the future, is for our good. Trust God. Don't glue yourself to someone casually. What does he believe? What does she believe? Are you actually heading in the same direction in life? In matters of faith, can you glue yourselves to each other? The temptation can be then to tamper with the model. It says, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. That joining wasn't a gradual process that happens in the world. You see, in the world what would happen is guy and girl start going out. After a while, guy and girl start sleeping together. Then becomes a bigger decision. Shall we move in? And then maybe, shall we start a family? And down the line, is it time to marry? Should we join together now? God's way is completely the other way around. Boy meets girl. They decide to marry. And when they make those vows, they understand They are one. And that's the point at which they live together, sleep together, and then have children together on the basis of all those promises that have been made in God's hearing, and if it happens here, ours too. We were there. We heard your promises to to your wife, to your husband. So don't put it apart. Can you imagine? Well, is this saying that it's impossible to take two pieces of paper that are stuck together and and tear them apart. It's not impossible to do it. But it, it will never be the same. Those two pieces of paper will be marked. There's pain. Let you know, What God has joined together, don't put apart. Don't do anything to, to damage that precious union. To the unmarried, 
hopefully it is not too controversial to say marriage is not the ultimate goal of the Christian life. The ultimate goal in the Christian life is to know God, to be devoted to him, to love him with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls. For many that will, that will involve loving God within marriage. Marriage is a gift. It's not a, it's not a goal. It's a gift. Paul, uh, Pete, uh, yeah, no, it's Paul this time. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, genuinely, I wish all men could be as I am, but some people have one gift and others have another. Marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. Jesus and the Apostle Paul were single and the majority of us will start and finish our lives as single people. So perhaps, therefore, we need to give more attention to encouraging it and working out how to live contented, zealous, godly, single lives as many as many of us in this church actually are already doing. There are benefits and blessings to marriage and there are challenges too. Paul goes on to write about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And there are benefits, blessings and challenges of being single and celibate as well. Now what about to the divorced? Those who have experienced uh, divorce. Um, Jesus spends this extra time with his disciples and certainly on first reading it's startling and we need to remember that the gospel is good news. We need to see that Jesus was speaking into a very known debate at the time. So Mark kind of speeds his way through the conversation. And so we are told uh, anyone who divorces his wife and marries a, another woman commits adultery against her and so on. Uh, Matthew recorded the same incident. But for the benefit of people who would not have known as much about the debate that was uh, was taking place, um, a few more years it may have dulled in people's uh, awareness. He makes it clear there, if I can uh, find it myself. Um, he says in, in Matthew 19, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, for, so the blanks are filled in, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So what Jesus is speaking to those who have gone for an illegitimate, no grounds, write a quick certificate um, divorce, saying it's not on. It's not on. There are times... When a divorce takes place, recognizing that sin and hard-heartedness mean that vows have been broken. There's no celebration at that point. The Pharisees might be asking, is it lawful to do this? Is it lawful to do that? Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. See God's plan. See God's purpose. But know that God himself also has experienced divorce. When he, uh, we can see that in uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8. 
He says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. Uh, In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord knows what it is to be on on the receiving end of Just hard-hearted immorality from a a spouse that he dearly loves. And there came a a point to say, I think we've reached the end. So God knows what it's like. But for all of us, the gospel is good news. Again, I might just refer to Psalm 130 before we conclude Uh, with some worship in just a moment. Because again, in in Psalm 130, the psalmist asks this question. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, in verse 3, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. For any of us, none of us, would stand before God, righteous and clean, on the basis of our own conduct, or even our own attitudes, or even our own hidden thoughts in the context of marriage. We are going to be united with Christ forever in eternity as his bride, as his wife, because of the gospel, because of the good news in Jesus, because he provides a way whereby every spot, blemish, stain, charge that could be leveled against us, whatever our status in life, married, single, divorced and remarried, we will all join with a faithful, wonderful Messiah in heaven because he won't let go because of his wonderful faithfulness. And I think there we will conclude for today. Um, we will sing just a moment, but how about we stand, I will pray, and we'll, uh, we'll join in worship as well.